Over the last number of weeks, as we have gathered together, we have been looking specifically at the issue of humble power. And we've been looking at this issue because the issue of power is a very relevant one. It's one that impacts us in all kinds of different ways every day around us all the time. And from a human perspective, we think we know what real power is all about. Usually we associate power with things like maybe an army, specifically a vast army. And the more people you have in your army, the more powerful you are. And if your army is bigger than anyone else's, then you can conquer them and win and you can be powerful. Sometimes we think of being powerful more at an individual level. And so that involves maybe literally gaining more strength, being more physically intimidating by lifting weights or things like that. Sometimes we associate power with winning and with championships and more championships we have, the better, more powerful that we are. Now you can be grateful today because Rob wanted to put Cleveland Cavalier championship banners up there for you. I told him he couldn't do that, but you get the idea. It's the same for all of us. You seek a championship and hopefully if you win a bunch of them, that means you are more powerful. Obviously, we tend to associate power with something like riches. And the more money we have, the more money means we can spend it on what we want, get what we want, when we want it. We associate power with that. Some of us associate power with getting votes. And for us at an individual level, we love it on our own Facebook that the more likes that we get uh, on our Facebook, the more important we must be, the more influence we must carry, the more powerful we must be as a person. For some of us, We are so busy that we want other people to cater to our schedules. And so there's the idea of power being exerted that if you cater to my schedule, then we're okay. But again, for you to cater to me means I'm in the position of power. And sometimes there's just the idea that I want what I want when I want it. And we wish we had the power of that magic genie that could just snap our fingers and have whatever it is that we wanted to have. All of these are things that we tend to associate with power from our human perspective. But here's the question I want to ask us today. What if true power isn't found in any of those places? What if true power doesn't look at all like what I've just described? What if God's power, God's notion of power is completely different than ours? Really, that's what this entire sermon series has been about. Because when it comes to this issue of power, I believe that the world and our culture has stolen our imaginations on what true power is all about. And more than that, we have bought into the lie of power that our world tries to tell us. We often believe the lie that if we could just get enough worldly power, then finally we would be happy or we would be free or we would be content or we would be at peace with ourselves. But I imagine you probably noticed it never, ever ends up working out that way. So no matter which political party here wins very, very soon in the presidential election, suddenly all of our country's problems will not magically be fixed the next day or even the next number of months, even though we try to tell ourselves that. No one army or empire in the history of the world has ever been strong enough to conquer all other countries and rule in society forever and eliminate society's problems. And yet we think that if we can just become powerful enough, we can make that happen. After one championship, there's always another one to pursue. Winning feels great, but it's always temporary. It never lasts. I would get, venture to guess there's only a very few people in this, in this place or watching online or watching in another uh, venue here this morning that if I ask the question, who won the NFL championship, the Super Bowl, three years ago, that off the top of their heads they would know. Because winning never lasts. And yet we think, if I can just get to that next level of championship, then I'll be okay. Then I will be a powerful, significant person. We think, again, if we get just enough riches, we'll be okay. And yet, no matter how much money we have, we all still suffer from broken relationships or addictions or depression or lots of other things in our world. 
And more often than not, the very thing that we are striving after that we think will give us power, that will give us freedom and give us happiness becomes the very thing that ends up owning us and stealing from us power instead of vice versa. It's the Garden of Eden all over again, like we talked about last week, that reaching for the fruit, thinking, if I can just get that, then I will be happy, only to discover in the end, it ends up owning us. Such is the nature of worldly power. I believe that for every single one of us, we long deep down in the recesses of our soul to be a free people. We want to be filled. We want to be content. We want our souls to be satisfied. We want to experience peace rather than always having to search for more, except we search in all the wrong places. We think that worldly power will again satisfy us and we fall for the narrative over and over again because we've lost our imaginations. We have forgotten what true power looks like. But praise God, God does not forget us. And God does not continue or does not discontinue showing us what God's power is all about. And so God, through God's holy word and specifically through Jesus Christ, continues to reveal to us what true power really is all about, what humble power is all about. And I would submit to us this morning, only humble power will ultimately set us free, will fill us completely and ultimately satisfy the longings of our heart. Now, to get an idea of what God's humble power looks like, where to experience it, how to find it, I want to invite us this morning to take a very careful look at the life of Jesus, and specifically Jesus' life as described in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One of the things that the Gospels help us to do is to realize that Jesus experiences an abundance of life from within him. Jesus' own soul is one brimming with life and beauty and grace, and the way that is achieved for Jesus is through something called spiritual disciplines. Now, spiritual disciplines are biblically rooted, self-imposed habits that nurture and foster spiritual growth, leading to spiritual maturity and intimacy with God. So if you look again at the life of Jesus from childhood on, you see that his life was built around a weekly observance of observing the Sabbath honoring God on that day of rest. You will see that every year he made an annual pilgrimage to the temple. We hear that Jesus would regularly rise before dawn early in the mornings to have times of solitude to pray. Before his public ministry even began, he spent 40 days of solitude, silence, fasting, and prayer out in the wilderness. All of those are forms of spiritual disciplines. Now, I'm guessing that as I say those things, Again, even the word discipline or strict observance to following something, it doesn't sound very free to us. To have to constantly practice disciplines sounds limiting rather than freeing. It sounds boring rather than fulfilling. But one of the remarkable things that the gospel showed us is that spiritual disciplines helped allow Jesus to have such a deep well of life and love within him that he was always prepared at a moment's notice to offer that life and that love to whoever needed it. I want to say that one more time. The spiritual disciplines helped allow Jesus to have such a deep well, a deep reservoir of life and love within him, always kind of brimming at the very top of his soul. He was ready at a moment's notice to offer that life, to offer that love to whoever needed it. Whether he was expecting that person to show up or not, whether it was planned or not, whether Jesus was having a great day or one of those no good, horrible, very bad days like Alexander kinds of days didn't matter. Jesus' soul was always primed and ready to offer that life and that love no matter what he was facing. 
So that every time there was an interruption in the life of Jesus, we discover an unmistakable pattern as the author Andy Crouch points out. And that pattern is this. Whenever Jesus has a change in plans or something unexpected happens to him, it almost always takes him in the opposite direction from what he was going to do for his own privilege. Every time he's interrupted, instead of using that interruption to serve himself, Jesus used that interruption to serve others rather than himself. And that is completely the opposite of what you and I often do. And we see a prime example of what we're talking about this morning in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. And so I want to invite you this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, please take them out with me. We're going to the Gospel of Mark. Second book in the New Testament, Matthew, and then Mark. Now, Mark is a pretty interesting gospel. He is the most fast-paced of the gospels. So just by the end of chapter one, I mean, first chapter, not only has Jesus already come onto the scene, but he's already been tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. He's already started his ministry. He's already called his disciples. He's already started preaching, and he's already started healing and doing miracles. Whew! All the way at the end of chapter one, I mean, it's boom, 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 boom. The Gospel of Mark is kind of like the just the facts kind of book. And he kind of gets straight into it in the life of Jesus. So I want to invite you, Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. And here we see that Jesus is on his way to the house of a man named Jairus. Now, Jairus was a synagogue ruler. And he had a 12-year-old daughter who was in the process of dying. Now, that hits me because I have a daughter. She's only 14, so it wasn't long ago that she was 12 years old. In fact, my boys right now are 12 years old. And so I literally kind of picture them in this story. My goodness, what would it be like to have one of them dying? And Jairus, he's a big deal. I mean, he's an important kind of guy. He's a synagogue ruler. He has all the marks of power in his society because of his gender, because of his position, because he has a house full of servants. He is a big deal dude. He is a powerful man in this time, especially by the world's standards. And yet, despite all his worldly power, despite all his worldly influence, here he's brought low. Here he is experiencing powerlessness because all of his riches, all of his influence can't make his daughter well. And it forces him to come humbly before Jesus and he asks Jesus for help. Now keep in mind, if Jesus goes at this particular time to perform a miracle at Jairus's house, it's only going to be good news, good publicity, good PR for Jesus because Jairus is an important man. So if Jesus really wants to get ahead, if Jesus wants to look great in that society, if he wants to elevate his own status and his own power, If he wants to seek out some great ratings among the audiences, then this is going to look so good if he can go and heal Jairus's daughter. So they begin making their way to Jairus's house. And we're told then in Mark chapter five, verse 24, they are surrounded by a very large crowd. Now, remember, Jesus is a charismatic visitor in that area at that time. Jairus is a local leader at that time. So these are two important, prominent figures. Think of it a little bit. It would be like our current president going to meet with the Pope to talk about what to do and how to best respond to people with Hurricane Matthew, like something along those lines. You can imagine how much media attention would be drawn to that. That's kind of what's happening here with Jesus and Jairus. So they're making their way to Jairus's house in the midst of this crisis, and time is of the essence. Every moment counts. Jairus's daughter is ill. She is dying. And so the faster they can get there, the better. Except, hold everything, Mark chapter 5, verses 25 to 30. They're making their way along, and suddenly, 
A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, then I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. And at once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? So hold on, hold everything. In this account, with what's going on with Jesus, suddenly there is a decisive pause in the action. And I'm guessing from Jairus' point of view, a fatal interruption is occurring. Because here is a woman now at the opposite end of Jairus, a woman who by every measure of society is a woman of disempowerment, a woman of powerlessness. Because here she is, she's a woman in that society. She is chronically ill. She was so ill that she was left perpetually unclean, meaning she was cast out from the communities that she would have even tried to be a part of. It prevented her from having any children because of this illness. She would have suffered and lost absolutely everything. Now remember, Jairus had approached Jesus from the front. He approached him humbly, but boldly coming to Jesus, falling at his feet and literally looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, will you help me? But here's this woman of no name who comes up to Jesus from the back. She can't even bring herself to come to him from the front. She doesn't even dare speak or utter or call his name or ask for help. All she can do is summon enough courage from the back, hoping she won't be noticed, to reach out and maybe catch a thread of his cloak. And notice that while we're given Jairus' name over and over, we're never given this woman's name. She remains completely anonymous. The contrast here between worldly power and powerlessness could hardly be any more stark. All we know is that her faith draws her to Jesus and the power from Jesus then causes him to stop and search and ask what has happened. Now think about that for just a moment. Literally picture in your mind, there's Jesus. What would it even look like for power to flow out of him? It's, it's a fascinating image that we're given. And eventually this woman comes forward. She realizes that Jesus knows something has happened. And then Jesus looks at her and he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. So now verse 34, go and be freed from your suffering. Now, this is great news for this nameless woman. She's healed. But remember, it took time. Precious time has been ticking off the clock as this has all been going on. So while she is healed, this nameless woman, it comes at a great cost for Jairus's daughter. We're told that while Jesus is still speaking, if you look in verse 35, while Jesus is still, still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus and shared that his daughter is dead. She's gone. She's died. So this interruption that's occurred on this journey seemingly saved one anonymous daughter but at the doom and the expense and the life of another prominent daughter. Now, the text doesn't tell us what Jairus was thinking, but I can guess what he's thinking, and so can you. I can just imagine what Jairus is thinking. Jesus, why did you have to stop? Why didn't you just come straight away when I asked you? If you'd have come here first, you could have healed my daughter, then gone back and helped that other woman or anyone else. Why did you stop, Jesus? It cost my daughter her life. And don't we all have those moments in our own life? Jesus, where are you? Why are you taking so long? Why aren't you coming right when I need you the most? 
And apparently Jairus' servants are thinking the same thing. They even say to Jairus in verse 35, hey, your daughter's dead, Jairus. Why bother this teacher anymore? Just leave him alone. There's nothing he can do now. It's all too late. But then rather surprisingly, if you look and you go to verse 36, Jesus ignores their pessimism. And Jesus says in verse 36, don't be afraid, just believe. So then Jesus goes on and he arrives at the house of this powerful man, Jairus. Only when he gets there, he closes the doors so that nobody but the parents and three of his disciples are even going to see the ensuing miracle. So here it is, astonishingly, Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead. She is resurrected. And look where it takes place. Completely out of sight. No one else except the parents and three of the disciples are there to see what's going on. And if you look in verse 43, we can start to think and speculate. The crowds, they don't get to see this. They're, they're going to start speculating about how she actually recovered. They might even start thinking to themselves, well, maybe she didn't really die. Maybe she had just passed out or fainted, and now she's kind of back to consciousness. I point that out because look what the gospel's doing. This is so interesting. This anonymous daughter, the one with no name, she's healed out in public among the crowds for everyone to see. But then this prominent daughter of Jairus is healed in private, not even healed, raised back to new life completely in secret. I hope that we can hear the irony in that. It's all backwards from our normal associations with power. And no story more clearly indicates Jesus' utter disregard for human power and privilege than this one. And so what we discover then is that Jesus is swayed neither by Jairus' holding of power or by the woman's lack of power, but rather by faith and the desperate need for each one. So he's not against the powerful and all for the powerless and vice versa. It's both. We see that Jesus is not a strategic political calculator currying favor with the local leaders, but he's also not a revolutionary person seeking to undercut or hurt the powerful. Instead, what is Jesus? He's a restorer of daughters, of sons and daughters, known and unknown, socially central and socially marginal, those associated with power and those without. And what we see then is God's power resulting in a unifying, creating a beautiful diversity where everyone, everyone, the known and the unknown, the central and the marginal, the powerful and the powerless, the rich and the poor, everyone in God's kingdom is welcomed and loved. But notice this. While Jesus seems somewhat indifferent to human power, he is at the same time keenly aware of his own power. And he uses that power even when he's interrupted from his own plans. Now, Jesus on this day, maybe he was well rested, but maybe he was hungry or maybe he was tired. Or as we say now, he's hangry and all, you know, hungry and angry and upset all at the same time. But notice that when he uses his power, he uses it not for his own privilege, not for his own recognition or status. Over and over again, we see that when the agenda of Jesus is interrupted, he uses his power for the benefit of somebody else rather than seeking privilege and status for himself. Now, I want to pause this there for just a moment. I want us to think in our own lives. Let's be honest in our own souls for just a few moments here because we struggle with this. If I do something for someone else, I want it to be recognized. I want it to be known. I want it to be celebrated. 
If I help somebody else, I want somewhere in the back of my mind for recognition to be given to that. I want to make sure I get something out of it for giving up my time and my effort and you name it. And I hear this among us as a church as a whole at times. For example, when we celebrate in our Transform Mission Week, every year, somewhere along the line, I hear something to the effect of, well, we're happy to go serve them, but when are we going to see them here? We went and served them. Now, they need to do something in return and, and come here and be in worship with us or those kinds of things. Or in regards to something like the Acts Network, sometimes I hear things like, well, when are those people that we're trying to serve, when are we going to see them here? So it's fine for us to send someone out and try to meet people on their turf and in a changing world, share the gospel in new ways. But ultimately, when are we going to see them? When are we going to see fruit? Because if we don't get something from that, then why are we doing it? Well, let me ask for a second. What if we don't? (laughs) What if nobody responds? Don't get me wrong. We're not setting it up that way. We are certainly hoping to share the love, the life of Jesus Christ, to see new people come to know Christ in new ways through the Acts Network and all kinds of other ways. But what if we don't? Are we mature enough in our own faith to say, you know what, God, it doesn't matter if they come and serve me or not. I will serve you. I will do what I can simply because that's what I do as a follower of you. And Lord, you recognize it. And that's enough for me. I don't have to demand that they serve me because I served them. All of that kind of raises the question, can we be mature in our enough in our own walk to use our power to help others in their faith journey, whether it ever benefits me or not, whether it ever gets recognized in the church as a whole or not, whether it directly benefits us or not. And it makes me at least wonder, well, Jesus, why didn't you need that? How in the world were you able to go out and do all this stuff for all these other people? And it didn't matter to you if you had privilege or status or if it benefited you or if anyone else recognized it. How could you how could you be so oblivious to that? How could you operate that way? And here's the answer. Jesus understood John 13, 3. Jesus knew as deeply as any human being possibly could that the father had already given all things into his hands. In other words, Jesus's identity was so secure and already founded in God, the father, God, the father already recognized him. So because of that, he didn't need the recognition of anyone else. His soul was already filled In fact, it's so full, it's so filled with peace, it's so filled with contentment, it's so filled to the brim with grace and life and beauty and vitality that even when his life is interrupted, what spills out is that love and blessing on others rather than for himself. And so what I want us to hear is is to us to think about no matter what interruptions happen in our lives, what would need to happen for us also to experience this humble reservoir of power in our own soul so that no matter what life threw our way, whatever was going to spill out of us at a moment's notice would be love and grace for others rather than the seeking of privilege for ourselves. I mean, it almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? To be a people so free that I don't have to care what other people think. To be a people so filled with God's power that we can be content no matter what life circumstances may bring about us. To know that we don't have to keep searching endlessly. That we have already been recognized in the eyes of God the Father through Jesus Christ. So that we may contribute and offer to the flourishing of creation. Rather than stealing from creation for our own benefit. Which is going to pass away anyhow. How in the world are we able to experience that kind of humble power for flourishing no matter what life circumstances may bring? Two words for you. 
through spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are that difficult and that simple. They are that ordinary and that profound. Because spiritual disciplines, they confront us and they gradually wean us off of our own God playing. By making us into a spiritually poor kind of people, the kind of people who fall at the feet of Jesus and to the best of our ability, even from behind, we reach out and just hope our fingers will nick the thread of his cloak. Spiritual disciplines form us into the kind of people where when our own agendas are interrupted, we're happy to let that grace flow out for others rather than ourselves. Spiritual disciplines have a way of taming the false power of this world and unleashes instead a path to flourishing as God intended it. So I'm guessing this, that even as I say words like spiritual disciplines, I'm guessing that very few of us, wherever we might be, are jumping up and down in excitement saying, yes, I was hoping you were going to say that. I love spiritual disciplines. They're so fun and energetic and entertaining and flashy. No, not like that. I mean, spiritual disciplines, they require patience and repeated choices and, and discipline. And only are you rewarded after a longer period of time rather than shorter. But here's the thing about spiritual disciplines. On the one hand, they're so easy that any human being can do them. You don't need a certain set of skills to do them. They're accessible to every one of us. And on the other hand, they're so very difficult because no matter how much we practice spiritual disciplines, we realize in our own hearts and soul, we never get so calibrated to the walking in the spirit of God that we walk in 100% harmony. And so there's always a deeper place to go. Thus, spiritual disciplines remind us ultimately that we are a fragile, weak, vulnerable people. And in practicing them, we recognize how deep our own commitment runs to ourselves. We realize how much we seek power for our own comfort. I mean, we're addicts to our own comfort. If we need any reminder of how much we seek our own comfort, really in everything we do, just think for a moment, go throughout your normal day. I don't know what your day is like, but I know for an awful lot of people, it's hard for the day to begin without getting at least one cup of coffee that they like. And increasingly, it's not even just a cup of coffee. It's a certain flavor coffee and all the kinds that I like. And I've met a lot of people now, don't bother them, don't mess with them before they've had their coffee. Or you're not going to be happy and they certainly aren't going to be happy. But we do that because it's a thing that we've just kind of gotten used to and we're comfortable with. How often during the course of a normal day do we go, how many times do we need to check our Facebook? Cause we just need to see what's going on at least once a day, or maybe once an hour for some of us way more frequently than that. We just need to see who commented on what we said or how many likes we got on something we put on there. And we do that just cause you know, it's, it's, it makes me feel good to see what's going on there. Or how often do we look and you know, seek out our next show that we like and we set aside time so we can do a little Netflix binging and just really enjoy all of those shows that we've been saving up for and watching. We do everything we can to kind of clear our schedule so we can watch that because we're, we're comfortable with that. It makes us feel good. We love our own comfort and setting life up in such a way to use our power to feed our own comfort. Just a few weeks ago, we were at a staff retreat and we were sharing lunch together. And the lunch that had been provided for us, it was so good. And one of the things that they made for us that day was a homemade chocolate caramel cookie that each one of us got to enjoy. And let me say, it was so good. Now, that should have been enough. And it was. But for me, I've shared this with you before. Whenever I have dessert, especially one as good as that, these homemade cookies, I really, water is okay, but I really want milk with my cookie, right? And so there we were, and they had given us water with these cookies, but I just couldn't help myself. The people that were serving us, I said, is there any way I could bother you and get a glass of milk with that as well? Well, that was the dumbest thing to do because our staff heard that, and I've just never heard the end of it since, and who do you think you are? And there you are demanding, with all these great cookies, you have to have milk on top of it. 
I couldn't help myself because, I mean, Jen in our house knows this. When it comes to dessert, I have to have milk with it. And I don't just have to have it. Like, I have to calibrate exactly how the milk corresponds to the dessert. So after I take my last bite of dessert, there's like this much milk left. And then I finish it, and it's all good. Now, I know I have issues as I share that with you. I get it. All right? But that's I love milk with my dessert. So the, the person graciously brings me milk and sets it down at the table. And I'm, I'm kind of being barraged by the staff as they're giving me a hard time about this. And one of them said something to me, and I turned to address them. And right when I did that, one of our staff, who shall remain nameless, but his initials are M and M, took my glass of milk and before I could do anything, drank half of it. <gasps> Let me tell you, I, I literally gasped. Like that was, that was not okay. I mean, I had sort of a violent reaction. And again, my wife, Jen, will tell you that's not okay. Few things will get under my skin more than doing that. Why? Because I had set everything up in that instance for my own comfort. And when it was stolen from me, I mean, it threw me like you wouldn't believe. Don't we all have such things in our lives? Where our appetites are so strong for ourselves, for our own comforts, we can't even imagine operating outside of them. But when we practice the spiritual disciplines, our own appetites start to be stripped away so that we might have more of an appetite for God rather than ourselves. And that's where our true power comes from. When we are stripped of our own comfort and our own addictions and our own self-autonomy and worldly power, then finally we're in a position where God's flourishing might happen. Then we're in position for a different kind of power than the world's power. Then we're open to God's idea of power rather than our own. And it's totally different than what the world offers. But it's a power that ultimately sets us free and fills us with peace and security. And ultimately then gives us the power to create in the world along with God. Some of you might know this. I think a number of you do. But Pastor DG's son, Andrew, he is a professional musician. He plays the violin for a quartet named the Altius Quartet. Andrew has literally spent his life practicing the violin day in, day out, hour after hour after hour when there were no crowds and no audiences there. And it was just him and just the tedious nature of practicing every single day. It was incredibly hard work. He still has to work incredibly hard at it. Why does he do it? Because in the practicing, Andrew was able to defer smaller hopes for the possibilities of a larger future. He was able to understand that in being disciplined, he would be given opportunities that less disciplined people would never be given. And so as a result, Andrew has won, along with his group, various awards around the country, around the world. He's been literally taken to different places in the world to go and play the violin with his group. He's been able to make a living doing what he loves to do. But even more than that, I want to show you a very brief clip of what all of that practicing has allowed Andrew to do with his group. And so second from the left on the clip you're going to see is Andrew playing his violin. Let's go ahead and watch that for just a second. Do you see what Andrew's really doing? 
He's doing more than playing the violin. He's actually, if you look closely, creating. All the discipline that Andrew has subjected himself to all of these last number of years has gotten him to a place where now he can create, he can offer something into the world and universe that did not exist before. For him to play the violin in the way that he does offers such a unique and beautiful sound that the world has never experienced that ever before. And in doing that, Andrew is offering a flourishing with creation. He is bearing God's image and what God has equipped him to do. And who doesn't want to live like that? To live in our sweet spot of our passions. To be who God created us to be and to offer beauty and life into God's creation. Who wouldn't want such power? Church, God offers it to us right here, right now. I invite each one of us in the midst of our own hearts and our minds and our souls to follow the example really of both Jairus for his daughter and the woman in seeking healing, but really like that woman to reach out in desperation and humility for the edge of the cloak of Jesus, that we too might receive the humble power that God offers that we too would experience the new life that God offers. And then beyond that, to consider what spiritual discipline can we step into? Can we find some time? Can we make some time to be in God's word? And one specifically I'd ask for your help with today. Every Friday morning at 6 a.m., we gather at the North Campus for prayer. Would we be willing to sacrifice and come and share in that time of silence and solitude to be in prayer? And as you've already heard, you have the opportunity on the communication card for the next three weeks. For three weeks, would we be willing to give up some time and come and pray during another service and be in prayer for those in that service? And just see what begins to happen. See how God unleashes God's power in those places we're praying for, but also in our own lives. That we unblinded experience and see God's full recognition in our lives, which then frees us from seeking it from others. I invite us this day to reach for the cloak of Christ, to receive God's humble power.